were in Mark at the end of chapter 6 where Jesus had sent the people out, sent them away, sent the disciples in a boat to go across the sea, and he himself went to pray. And in that, uh, in that story, we saw where the disciples on the water entered a storm, and Jesus saw them as he was praying uh, and came to them walking on the water. And we realized last week that Jesus brought basically three things to the disciples. One is that he brought his knowledge, knowing that the disciples were in the storm. He knows our storms. He knows our situations and circumstances. But not only does he know about them, he also brings his power, knowing that he is the one who can walk on top of our situations and on our problems. And uh, not only does he know about it, he has the power to do something about it. Uh, but it would be um, a little something left uh, if we didn't just, if we only talked about knowledge and power. Because we have to talk about God's love and compassion in our storms as well. As we said last week, you and I are very dear to the heart of Jesus. And he knows our storms. And he knows our situations. The questions we kind of asked last week was, uh, do I believe that? Do I believe that Jesus knows my situation and my circumstances? Do I believe that he has the power to do something in me while in the circumstance and in the storm? And then finally, do I really believe that Jesus has me on his heart, that I'm very dear and near to him? That's what we looked at last week, and I hope you had some time to look through some of those questions through your storms of life. And this morning, we continue with Jesus and his disciples. Remember, Jesus, uh, they land, they moor the boat at the end of chapter 6, uh, and they go out into the villages, into the cities, into the, uh, the, the countryside. And then they're, at the end of chapter 6, we see in the first of chapter 7 that they are coming back. And that's uh, what we look at this morning. As they come back, they interact with the Pharisees and the scribes. So before we get into that passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to come, to be reminded that we are very dear to you. That you love us with an everlasting love. That you care for us deeply. That you know us deeply. God, thank you for the songs that we've sang this morning, the truth that we've rehearsed. And now, God, as we come and we open your word, we pray that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that by your spirit that you would expose areas of our lives where we need to trust more, move deeper into our walk with you. So, God, we come to you this morning open and ready to receive from you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you? that they would hear from the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition!
engineering on our territory. We have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work. How to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Now, I know a lot of you just want to keep watching that movie and want some popcorn or something, but I love Fiddler on the Roof. In high school, I had the privilege of playing in the play, and I got to sing one of the highest and longest notes of the play. You would have been really impressed. I'm not going to do that this morning, um, and you'll be very thankful. A few months ago, Penny and I got to see the uh, Broadway uh, rendition of this, and I, I love the play. Because I get connected and start to understand the power of traditions and the roots of traditions, uh, and particularly for the Jewish people. This word tradition comes from the Latin word traditio, which means handing over or handing down. Now we're here this morning because someone cared enough or had the faith enough to hand down to us traditions. They handed it down to us on some ways in what we do on Sunday mornings. And if Christ comes, uh, waits to come back, that we too will be handing down traditions a hundred years from now for people to be carrying on. So traditions can be good things. Traditions can be good things when they are in line with the heart of God and for the good of others. But most of us would agree that we in our culture has discarded so much of the good things of tradition that have been left to us. Elton Trueblood, an American theologian, several years back called us a cut flower civilization. And what he meant was this, that a cut flower civilization, we have cut ourselves off from our roots in so many ways that we are in grave danger of being rootless and therefore fruitless as people. And we see this in aspects of our culture, and we see this in aspects of our church. So tradition is not necessarily a bad thing. Tradition can link us to our past and give us roots to ground us for our future. The danger in traditions is when we lose our focus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This morning, I want us to look through this lens, this phrase this morning. It is the condition of your heart. Not the rituals you practice, traditions you follow, or disciplines you adhere to that determines your intimacy with God. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, and the title of the message is, It's All About the Heart. Remember, the disciples had gone out into the villages, miraculous works with the people, and now they're coming back. Chapter 7, verse 1. 
the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And they had seen some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying, You are ex experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would be help for you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him, if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men... Proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. What a powerful passage. And I want to break it down in three different sections. The first one is verses 1 through 5 and talk about the tradition or the history a little bit of the tradition. Jesus' response to the Pharisees and then how Jesus talks about it's all about the heart. Now in verse 5, the Pharisees and scribe asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders but eat their bread with impure hands? Now remember Mark, uh, the way it's structured... Uh, it's kind of an immediate type way it's written. And so the disciples were out ministering to the people. It says they were healing the sick, being with the uh, common people, and they were coming back. And the, the Pharisees noticed that they were eating with unclean hands or impure hands. In this scene, we find them eating, and we know what they were eating is bread, and we know how they were eating with unwashed hands. And it appears that the Pharisees and scribes are not really concerned at all about the miracles that have just happened, but they're more focused on the traditions that aren't being followed. And since they come from Jerusalem, which could be anywhere from seven to eight miles away, they came from Jerusalem to Gesenerat, where they landed. And since they come from all this way, 
They wanted to kind of interrogate Jesus. Remember, this uh, group of scribes and Pharisees weren't just kind of having a religious uh, debate. Remember in Mark chapter 3, it says, after they had been with Jesus, they looked for a way to destroy him. And in fact, a year from this point, about the traditions, a year from this point is when the crucifixion is going to take place. Now, just to make sure we understand that there's roles that the Pharisees and scribes had. The scribes were the people who would look at the law interpret the law, figure out the law, and then tell how to apply the law. The Pharisees would be the people who took what the scribes said about the law and how to apply it, and then make it visible for everybody to see that, hey, look, we are following the law. This is what it looks like. And so you had the scribes and Pharisees living out, interpreting what they believed the law to be. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes are total opposites of Jesus, and they don't really go well together. Because Jesus claimed he had divine privileges, Jesus would go against uh, honoring their traditions in respect to the Sabbath and the feasts. But basically, they were just simply opposites. Jesus' humility contrasted sharply with their arrogance. His sincerity with their hypocrisy, his sympathy with their judgment and cruelty. So they've traveled all this way from Jerusalem to be with Jesus so that may destroy him. Now what did they find when they get to Jesus? They found some men eating bread with unwashed hands. Now what's interesting is in Luke chapter 11 verse 38, Jesus also did that too. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised, verse 38 of chapter 11, that he, capital H, Jesus, had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now, it's true that those who are strict followers of rules and regulations and traditions have a keen eye for people who don't follow them. Right? So the Pharisees and the scribes had this keen eye, not only to follow the rules themselves, but to see who else wasn't. And they noticed Jesus. Now, at face value, it just kind of looks like, hey, Jesus, your disciples didn't wash their hands. Sounds like a good health practice. You've been out with dirty people, commoners, and you come back and your disciples are eating with dirty hands. But that's not what they're asking. So much deeper. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever... Have you ever asked a question or been asked a question where you know the question hit a nerve? Like maybe with your spouse, like, ooh, not sure I should have gone there. Their face kind of puffs up a little bit, get red in the face maybe. This question that the Pharisees and scribes ask of Jesus strikes a nerve. And I'm not saying that Jesus had a a pufferfish face and red. I'm just saying that this strikes a nerve for Jesus. The subject raises up in Jesus this loving aggravation. Because we need to understand what the religious leaders were asking and what they meant by washing. They're not simply talking about scrubbing their hands. 
So what are they talking about? Ceremonial unclean hands. Ceremonial unclean hands are hands that have been with commoners and have not been purified. It's not necessarily about germs that they're worried about. It's being impure before God. In Jesus' day, this tradition, this, this idea of being pure before God based on outside influences was growing in popularity because the Pharisees could notice it, measure it, and do something about it. And so here's what the Pharisees are getting at. Jesus, you say that you are a rabbi, a teacher of the law of God, and yet you and your disciples do not follow the traditions given to us by our elders. How are you reconciling that? You're showing disregard, disrespect to the traditions that have been passed down to us by our elders. Now, there were definite rules for washing hands. The hands had to be washed, and they had to be washed in a certain way. And first, the hands had to be clean of any dirt or any kind of mortar, any kind of sand. And then, the hands had to be washed um, in, with water from these special large stone jars. Ceremonial water. Now, if you remember, Jesus' first miracle, he changed the water into wine, right? And it was from this water, the ceremonial jugs of water, that he turned the wine. And here's how the hands were to be washed. First, the hands were to be pointing upwards. And water was poured on the hands to make sure it goes past your wrist on both hands. Then you take one fist and you scrub the palm of one hand. Then you take a fist and scrub the palm of the other hand. And now you have dirty water on your hands. And now you turn your hands down and pour the water from your wrist down, and the dirty water comes off your wrist. Your, wrist are, your hands are now clean, and you dry your wrist, and now your ceremonial, your ceremonial washes your hands. All this had to be done. Not necessarily get your hands clean, but to show yourself that you are now pure to be before God. That was the tradition. To not do this in the eyes of the Jewish people of the Pharisees and the scribe was not to be guilty of bad manners, but to be unclean in the sight of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees had held tightly to these regulations that they thought that this was the essence of religion. This is the essence of what it means to be right before God. And so there's obvious a split between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus responds to this fundamental difference. So now Mark's readers are kind of anticipating. Why aren't your disciples eating like, washing their hands like everybody else? And you think, here comes going to answer that Jesus is going to answer. Instead of explaining the disciples' perceived disobedience, he tells the Pharisees and scribes of their misled obedience. And he he gives two really powerful answers in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and, and Isaiah 29, 13. He says this, He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus why do your disciples 
not carrying on the traditions. Jesus responds, you hypocrites. This isn't going over very well. Now imagine a Pharisee and a scribe who have given their life to the commandments and following the law of God is being called a hypocrite based on their following the law of God. He calls them hypocrites. This word hypocrisy. The definition means this. It begins by meaning simply one who is an actor, but not one whose whole life is a piece of acting without any sincerity behind it at all. Another metaphor you can use with this word hypocrisy is a mask. That you put a mask on for this people, and then you take it off for these people. It's, it's not a congruent life. Now Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, it's been called the woe chapter, woe to the Pharisees chapter. In, verse 20, in chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 27, it says this, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Paul says it like this to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Jesus is saying this, that you're masked, false, acting like your traditions give you intimacy with God, life is hurting my ears. It's loud and clangy. He's pointing out that the Pharisees are believing that if they have to be close to God or godly, that it has to do everything with what they can do to make it happen. One commentator said this, Legalism takes account of a person's outward actions, but it takes no account at all of their inward affections. In other words, a person may be meticulously following the law of God outwardly, but bluntly disobeying God inwardly. And this, Jesus says, is hypocrisy. He says, your lips, your lips honor me, but your heart is far from me. Jesus is trying to say that the inside matches the outside. In fact, it is the inside that should dictate what the outside does. The outside can never dictate what the inside is or does. He goes on to a second accusation that, that they substitute the efforts of human cleverness for the laws of God. I like how one commentator said this, Cleverness can never be the basis of true religion, and true and undefiled religion can never be the product of a person's mind. It must always come from simply listening to and accepting and obeying the voice of God. The Pharisees and scribes were, were trying to be clever with all these rules and regulations and in some ways manipulate God. Do you remember Tevye's words in the opening clip? He says, because of our traditions, because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is 
and what God expects him to do. The problem with that, the basic problem with that is who gets to decide the traditions? And who gets to decide if you succeed or fail? Who gets to decide if you're right or wrong? Well, the Pharisees and scribes had put themselves in that position. And Jesus says, that's not your position. Because you can't see what's going on on the inside. And I can. So this man-made and not God or spirit-led form of religion was totally opposite to why Jesus came. It pushed a nerve. A loving aggravation. Now Jesus uses this other example. It's only found here in Mark chapter 7. It's this idea of something being Corban. The word Corban is only found in Mark chapter 7, verse 11. And the interpretation is given in that same verse where Corban meant something devoted to God as a gift. Something devoted to God as a gift. Now this word describes something being offered to God, to be set apart to God, meaning that it can't be used for other things. What the scribes and Pharisees were doing were declaring things Corban for people that it set aside for God, but knowing full well that it wasn't being used for God. And they were okaying that. And so Jesus says, you are saying that things set aside for God are for God, but you really know that it's not being set aside for God, and you're saying that it's okay that it's set aside for God. And so you're setting your traditions over the commandments of God. So Jesus' counterattack has been forceful. He was attacking a system, a system that puts rules and regulations before God and before people. The commandment of God was love God and then others as yourself. The commandment of the scribes and Pharisees was traditions, legal rules, and regulations, and that's what should come first. So that brings us to our last point, the heart of the matter. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus calls the crowd to him, although I'm assuming that the crowd really wasn't that far away because this argument was getting heated and they were leaning in. And so he invites them over, and in verse 15, Jesus says, There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. Now, this may not seem like a, a major passage for us this morning, but in Jesus' time, this was a radical radical statement because the pharisees inscribed everything was measured whether or not it would defile somebody and jesus is saying nothing outside of a man defiles him it's what's on the inside it was really a revolutionary idea of thinking in essence he was also saying that all foods are now acceptable it's a really radical statement the pharisees and probably even the disciples their ears perked up and said what are you saying and Jesus says, it's not what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside. It's on the inside stuff that we need to pay attention to. Jesus tells us that our sin problem springs from our hearts, not from what's on the outside. Now, it's true, and James talks about this, that there are things on the outside that lure us, but it's luring us to what's already in there inside 
The heart is wicked and the heart is deceitful, and Jesus cares very, very much about issues of defilement. The implication Jesus is saying is that it's only people. It's only people that can be unclean, not things. And people are not made unclean by things, but by the thoughts and actions that are inside the heart. He says in verse 18, Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it goes into the, uh, not into his heart, but into his stomach, and then is eliminated? So what comes out of the heart? Verses 21 and 22, evil thoughts, fornications, theft, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, all, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That's all in here? I've done word studies on some of that. If you want to really look at this list, it's a pretty powerful list. Jesus is calling for a, a, a self-heart examination. That's why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, how many of you have heard in our culture today, just be true to your heart. Just be true to your heart. If there's one societal or cultural commandment that we need to break, it is for us to break the notion of be true to your heart. We hear it all the time. Listen to what the heart tells you. The only truth is what is true for you. You do you. Nobody can tell you what to do. You've got to be true to yourself. Listen to your heart. This is the stuff the world drills into us. That the only authority we really need is to listen to my heart. Whatever my heart tells me, I'm going to do it. Because that's what my heart told me to do. And Jesus is going, no. No. From your heart. Do you know what's in your heart? The only time we are to listen to a heart is if it has been surrendered to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me, not your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is sick beyond cure. That's why we have this great promise in Ezekiel when God says, I will take your old heart and I will give you a new heart. Our hearts and minds are to be subject to the will and pleasures of God. Notice this progression of David in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the progression. It's not flip-flopped. It's not saying, these are my desires, God, make it happen. It's the other way around. God, show me your desires. Delight, joy in your desires. Then he will give me the desires of my heart. Our delight in the Lord must, become, must come before the desires of our heart. If not, the desires will match up with what Jesus described comes out of the heart. 
The Bible never says to follow our hearts. It tells us to examine our hearts before the Lord. It's what David said, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my what? My heart. And see if there's any anxious or wicked way in me. And then lead me to the life and way everlasting. If you are going to do anything with your heart, trust it to the Lord. We have messed up our world, country, culture, relationships, lives, enough already by doing what seems right in our own eyes because we listen to our heart instead of listening to the God who owns our heart as believers. So I'm going to leave you with three questions this morning. First is, that: do I live by heart or by tradition? In my relationship with God, what, what is it that motivates me? Is it approval, acceptance, belonging? Is my relationship with God about me and Him? Jesus confronted the Pharisees because they substituted their own traditions and desires for the will of God. The second question I want to ask you is this. What area or areas of your life has God revealed a strong presence of hypocrisy? How many of you know someone who will say one thing in front of one group of people? And then they get in front of another group of people and they become someone else. They talk differently. They act differently. Jesus confronted the Pharisees with a strong word about hypocrisy. And this morning, I am confident that Jesus wants to set you free from hypocrisy. That you are free to be who he created you to be, period. No more masks. No more acting or playing a part on a stage. To be free in God's grace and love. To live from a surrendered heart. Final question, am I following my own desires or am I committing to following the way of Jesus? Instead of maybe asking the question, does this feel right? Is, am I listening to my heart? Ask yourself this question, God, is this the desire of your heart? In whatever situation, whatever relationship. Remember, it is the condition of your heart, not the rituals you practice, traditions you follow, or disciplines you adhere to that determines your intimacy with God. As you can tell this morning, I'm going to partake of communion.